This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Improv campaigns for Fall of Delta Green. The Chicago Film Fest. James D'Amato. And Cornelius Agrippa. Remember Once Upon a Time? The fairy tale storytelling card game? That's the one. Do I? It's been an evergreen bestseller for 25 years now. Did you know there's a new expansion this holiday season? As a matter of fact, I put the copy for this ad in this week's grip, so not only do I know that, I also know that fairy tale mashups brings specific characters and situations from classic fairy tales to Once Upon a Time. So where original Once Upon a Time has a king and uh, something that can fly... Fairy tale mashups bring specifics like Puss in Boots, Humpty Dumpty, and a beanstalk. So it has hilarious juxtapositions. Check! Immediate accessibility for anyone who's ever heard a fairy tale. Check! An ending card that implies the three bears were eaten by a giant sheep. Spoiler alert! Once Upon a Time is a fairy tale storytelling card game great for role players and card gamers of all ages. It's a perfect holiday gift item and its new expansion, Fairy Tale Mashups, releases this November. Visit atlas-games.com for more information. Or get the to thine friendly local game store. Where every gamer lives happily ever after. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And uh, here in the gaming hut, we can barely see the miniatures because they may not even be here. The table's so full of handouts and thick, beautiful tomes because Patreon backer Jacques de Villiers has asked, when it comes to investigative sandbox games and epic handouts, Ken and Robin have spoiled us with, respectively, the Dracula dossier for Knights Black Agents and the Armitage Files for Trail of Cthulhu, two gifts that keep on giving, just like Jacques de Villiers does. What yeah, a guy. It's always good to start the podcast with uh, some flattery. That's good. With a little suck up. Yes. That's, that's well, the I secret to flattery. Well, whichever. I'll yeah. take a suck up. I'm, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever moves you. In the moment, beloved Patreon backer. Anyway, Jacques continues, currently lacking something similar for Fall of Delta Green, what would be your advice for redeploying these in-game artifacts in Fall of Delta Green's 60s setting? Robin, I assume the Armitage files, at least, should be able to work pretty straightforwardly in Fall of Delta Green because it's all about time getting screwy. So that can happen in the 1960s just as easily as in the 30s. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's already Cthulhu-y. Uh, we'll get to getting mixing up your Dracula and your Cthulhu's later. Um, and so the the premise, for those of you who don't know Armitage Files, is that uh, it is a an improvised campaign that you uh, improvise around the central currency of Cthulhu games, which is the player handout. And so there are a series of 10 handwritten documents that in the original, the players in the 1930s, or rather the characters in the 1930s, receive these documents through a hole in time. They're from Henry Armitage, uh, and, but they're from a terrible apocalyptic future. And so you go down the hall uh, uh, to uh, Henry Armitage at Miskatonic University, where you are presumably part of the Armitage inquiry, and you say, uh, Hank, what's up with this? And he says, don't call me Hank. And also, I don't know. Uh, this this is in my handwriting, but it's unfamiliar. It seems to be from a grim future. What's up? And then you go around investigating the various things. 
referred to in the documents, uh, trying to find out what events are going to converge to in the near future uh, in the world. So uh, in the 60s, uh, you can just use those very same documents, except they refer to an end of the world uh, in the late 30s and early 40s that, uh, as far as you know, haven't occurred. (laughs) And so there are a bunch of options. Uh, One, uh, these are just uh, documents created. They are the the ravings of a delusional person, uh, and they could have been by uh, Henry Armitage, who is probably not around in the 60s. or Probably dead. He is, yeah. he's, he's very elderly. Um, it could be someone, it could be a forgery. And why would there be a disinformation campaign to create the thought that there was possibly a concern about the end of the world? Well, uh, perhaps this is a an attempt to uh, uh, discredit uh, Armitage and, and company who, what is their role in the Delta Green continuity? Uh, Delta Green sort of dances gingerly around how much of Lovecraft is in canon for Delta Green. The Innsmouth raid takes place as known and uh, Migo exists. They were in Vermont, things like that. But some of this, it's very iffy on was there Arkham, for example. Does Arkham a real place? Because that's sort of a bigger deal than Innsmouth. And similarly, Miskatonic University is not front and center throughout Delta Green Adventures because I think it would provide a, a weird second locus and you can't have that because the whole point is you have one locus. It's Delta Green. No one else is going to do it for you. But that said, you could certainly have had uh, Henry Armitage be the librarian at Miskatonic University or at um, Bodwin College in Maine or wherever you want and then have a discovery that there was indeed a parallel uh, mythos uh, mission, just like yours, that was run by independent academics that maybe had some federal backing, maybe it didn't. And then they all disappeared at, for, for let's say, the date that happened in uh, the Armitage Files apocalypse. And as you look into it, it's a date disappeared kind of weirdly. And in some cases, aren't even left in phone books. And in other cases where uh, their names appear as um, uh, cannibal murderers who were arrested in New Hampshire, but not as scholars of the occult at all. And, and you could uh, pull that in and play with the how much of Lovecraft is true in this universe meta question by making it the question of investigating the Armitage files. So these documents then can be what you use as your starting point to uh, in, investigate, in, inquire into the Armitage inquiry. Um, it could also be the case that uh, y- you take the brown acid or you undergo an MK Ultra experiment or you uh, head off to a commune where you have a transcendental experience and you realize that the apocalypse detailed in these documents, which are just sort of things that you, you know, found in an old filing cabinet at HQ, uh, you realize that, oh no, the apocalypse really happened and that the apparently sunny consensus reality is, in fact, uh, just our uh, minds refusing to correlate the contents of what really happened, and uh, that uh, it's sort of this collective delusion. And if you, uh, you know, pull back the curtain at all, you see, uh, you know, Yarlathotep eating people's brains and uh, Yogg-Sasoth devouring uh, everyone's soul energy and you are living in a version of the apocalypse and all of the eruptions and chaos of the 60s are the that uh, consensus reality beginning to fall apart. And so that you, uh, that's a big clue that, uh, you know, uh, the apocalypse has already happened. And, uh, you know, do you do the uh, Joe Pentoliano thing and go, how do we put this back so that we don't know that our brains are being eaten by an Arlathotep? Um, and so that can be a, a thing that you can play with. Or there's just the idea that 
this happen in an alternate reality and now as uh, realities bleed into one another uh, that the disastrous uh, thing that happened in the 30s and 40s in the Trail of Cthulhu reality is now beginning to leak into the 1960s uh, Delta Green reality. So, uh, uh, and I guess another thing to do, if you want to do way more work, is you could recreate versions of those documents to have 60s references instead of 30s references and update all the characters. And uh, these are uh, reports, perhaps, uh, instead of the beautiful scrawled, uh, uh, defaced, uh, documents that continue to, to erode and corrode over time that they're, uh, they start out being fairly quotidian uh, military uh, reports, intelligence reports and uh, as you uh, get more and more of them, then the, the scrawls begin to show up so that you could uh, you know, just steal the premise and uh, do a lot of homework in order to uh, do uh, the, the Armitage files are an equivalent in your own Delta Green game. And a lot of the Armitage files prompts, I mean, to be fair, uh, the NPCs and the artifacts, I mean, the artifacts are certainly not time sensitive. It's not like, you know, they're all, you know, Stutz Bearcats or anything. They're just red boxes and weird stuff. And then the people, by and large, are not so completely tied to the 1930s that you can't at least use them to riff on the 1960s as a, um, you know, you, you take a rich jerk who owns a yacht in 1930, he's still going to be a rich jerk who owns a yacht in 1960. You take a gangster in 1930, he's still going to be a gangster in 1960. Those are not giant changes one way or the other. And so you can, at the very least, use the st- same Armitage files, follow the threads, and just mentally update them. And then, especially if you're playing with uh, loose time and uh, a slipping uh, apocalypse from one universe into the next, it can be, oh, if, if I've made a mistake and screwed something up, that must have been a time slip. And little patches of the 1930s showing up in the 1960s, instead of being your screw up, are actually a sign that the world is corroding faster and the players need to get on the stick. Uh, yeah, it could be that the as the apocalypse takes hold, that you go backwards. And, you know, it's not just that there's an apocalypse going to happen in 1971, but rather the apocalypse of 1941 is going to happen. And so that as you begin to investigate things, you know, the guy who was a, uh, a biker, you know, was all duded out in leather with fringes and had a big handlebar mustache and uh, was involved in, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the marijuana trade. Uh, he starts to turn into it. Next time he's a boot legger and he's uh, got a pinstripe suit and he's all clean shaven and he's got a diamond pin and uh, he doesn't think that's weird and uh, the people around him don't either. Uh, so it could be that, you know, a literal sort of uh, uh, reality overwrite is uh, coming in, which means you can also steal a bunch of stuff from the Yellow King while you're at it. Um, so this brings us to the uh, more challenging thing, which is doing a uh, Delta Green world with Dracula in it, where all of those things are still cool and uh, having a Dracula who is still uh, the worst and scariest in a Lovecraftian universe. Well, the saving grace there is that (laughs) I think as a result of a stretch goal, I actually wrote (laughs) the uh, mythos uh, Dracula into the book. So there is, in fact, a a call of Dracthulhu or campaign uh, frame called uh, the Abhorrent Truth in the back of uh, the Dracula dossier. And so you can... Uh, figure out which version of hideous Dracula you have. Um, it's added some specific uh, locations. And then because the game already has a 1970s module, 
changing those characters to 1960s people should not be that tough because they are intended to sort of be uh, relics of the 1970s and holdovers. And the game is written to make playing a game set in the 1970s plausible and possible. And so moving the mole hunt from the 70s to the 60s uh, maybe moving it from Britain to America is a bridge too far, although there's an American, there, there are a bunch of American leads in the dossier. And that is where you may have to do a little bit of work if you want to forge, um, you know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover memoirs or Alan Dulles memoirs about uh, Project uh, Find Forever and the American Vampire to lead you into England. But you could just be saying, you know, you you fight a whole bunch of Weird mythos vampires in America stay, you know, it's like a regular campaign, regular Delta Green series of adventures. And you've, you know, from whichever direction, there's like seven vampiric monsters that I have in the back there that are from the mythos and can be uh, tuned to become more vampire-y than, than less. You, you fought those guys and then you're like, well, where that was awful. Where did that come from? Oh, it came from Dracula. And then you go over to England because it's this vampire situation is so important. You're allowed to cooperate with Pisces. You go over to Pisces and you say, what do you guys know about Dracula? And then they start hunting you because Pisces and Edom are basically two arms of the same conspiracy. And so now it's you have to do the Dracula dossier as Delta Green agents, but you're in England and... You know, the U.S. government is not giving you any backing. Suddenly, it's Night's Black Agents. Yeah. <laughs> da, da, da. Um, and so uh, then uh, from there, it's just uh, it's in the 70s, but you've already done that. And uh, they've got the, uh, the copy of the Dracula dossier. They've got the uh, uh, Dracula unredacted uh, t- to mess with. I guess you just ignore the contemporary references. Or is there a dread future being... Uh, uh, referenced and um, maybe you can scrawl a few references to Henry Armitage in the, That's in the right. margins you can, as well. You can tie it in and, and run both of them if you want. That Dracula is somehow uh, because he's uh, a spawn of Yog Sothoth. Uh, he's able to manipulate time and space, and that's part of how he gets away from people who have the temerity to hunt him. And uh, that gives you a uh, uh, once again a, a villain who cares enough you uh, about you to uh, want to kill you, or at least to, to drink your blood. Uh, he's uh, uh, not human, but he's human enough to have uh, recognizable motivations and to uh, uh, chase you around and, and try to destroy you. So what's Dracula going to be up to? I'm sure you've established this already in uh, the uh, uh, Cold War environment of the 60s. Well, that's uh, that can be kind of up to you. Uh, we have, of course, the uh, capstone where he vampirizes Putin. Um, and you could say, oh, he's going to go vampirize uh, Khrushchev or Brezhnev, depending on exactly when in the 60s you're setting your game, or De Gaulle. You know, maybe he's like, oh, it's much easier if I have a little tiny country with uh, nukes and I can control France. And I know about France. Russia's just a lot stupid. of garlic there, though. Oh, that's true. That is a problem. But if he says spawn of Yogg Sothoth, he probably doesn't care about that. I mean, right. If he is a spawn of Yogg-Sothoth, which I'm picking at random, there's many other things he could be. He could have been uh, one of the resurrected, like Joseph Kerwin. They drank blood. He could have been a, a a star vampire who took human form when he was summoned. Any number of, of possibilities. But uh, the spawn of Yogg-Sothoth, his goal is to eventually cleanse the earth and then uh, be able to uh, bring about the the end times. And so I would borrow the plot of 
the good old satanic rites of Dracula in which Dracula plans to cleanse the earth. And he has a plague and he has a, a high level cult within British society. And you just run that and you run it as sort of a big, scary Avengers episode. Uh, the TV show, the Avengers, not your cartoon movies, people. Um, and uh, it's all kinds of weird British sixties um, uh, spy fi that is also an ingredient in your mythos and your Dracula. Um, you say, but Ken, that heady mixture can't be done. And I say it was done in Satanic Rites of Dracula. And the best part is it was done so half-assedly that you can't help but do it better when you do it yourself. So I would say um, pick a version of the apocalypse that Dracula is trying to bring out to, to cleanse all life. Uh, maybe it's a plague. Maybe he's just got to collect um, a MacGuffin so that he can uh, open up the invisible cities at the magnetic poles and uh, and and bring about the apocalypse that way. Maybe he has to just do a certain thing every seven years for X number of years. And we're, oh, we're right about there. You know, however you want to play it. And Or maybe he's just collecting a giant uh, occult library because once he can, with his space brain, correlate all the contents... Um, he's not a Yithian, sadly, but, you know, he's got a, a an alien uh, brain. Um, uh, once he can correlate all the contents, then he will become uh, Yogg-Sothoth, and he'll burst out of his own body and, and, and blow up the world that way. Right, and he's smart enough not to go to Nam, but uh, surely, yeah. uh, if, if he's trying to uh, cleanse the world, that he is responsible for all sorts of chaos and social disorder and... And bad attitudes. Yep. If, if he didn't start the conflict, he's doing his best to keep it going. Yeah, he can certainly be. Um, uh, and again, depending on where you want to put it, the the um, in the British government, the decision not to join uh, America in Vietnam was uh, controversial. And uh, I don't know that the people particularly wanted to go to Vietnam, but I, I think that the Conservative Party sort of wanted to back up America's play. And so the the Labour government, which was preventing that, uh, is a is a target for subversion and. Uh, Various sorts of bad actor attempts. And so Dracula can be behind those. He can be trying to get Britain into Vietnam so that he can start um, uh, profiting even more obscenely uh, from the war. Or perhaps he's the one keeping Britain out of Vietnam because he recognizes that Vietnam's a sideshow and he has better use things to do with the British Army than get everyone killed. It may be just sort of his experiment in uh, devastation. So, you know, he knows he's going to have to destroy all the forests in the world. So let's try Agent Orange. See exactly. How it does. Uh, and uh, we need uh, a, a bunch of cults to run mad and start killing everyone for no reason. So let's see what Cambodia is up to, that kind of thing. Uh, well, I, I think we've uh, uh, established now that you can uh, use uh, either, if not both, in Fall of Delta Green. Therefore, we have accomplished our mission. And when we do that, we quickly move to another hut and start up an entirely fresh mission. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires. And got burned. You're all alone against them. One player. One game master. Create your own agent, or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one -one rules, designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head -head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan, or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. 
all alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knight's Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. The complaints in the lineup, the confusion over digital ticket scanning tells were not only in the Cinema Hut, but a particularly film festival-y installment of the Cinema Hut. And since I'm throwing it, it can't be the Toronto Film Festival. It must be the Chicago International Film Festival, which, Ken, you did a somewhat truncated version of uh, uh, this year. Yeah, um, my normal uh, boon companion uh, had a bunch of job interviews that happened during the day for some reason. So uh, we were uh, forced to mostly go to evening films only, which cuts out a lot of uh, possibilities like I need to tell you. So I had plenty of people step up. There was some good times had, but I wound up only doing 17 movies instead of my normal uh, 21 or 22, which is, you know, half a Toronto, but I feel half a Toronto is uh, plenty of fun for anyone. Yes. And uh, as uh, initially, as your reviews were appearing in our, uh, Ken and Robin consume media file is going, oh no, Ken is having a bad year. But uh, some other things came through in the stretch and you found out some uh, cool things. And your favorite uh, film from the festival is one that I saw at TIFF and it's Bring Me Home, uh, a, a South Korean uh, a thriller by a director named Kim Sung-woo. And uh, like a lot of Korean movies, Ken, it does not mess around. It does not have no. any punches. <laughs> no, this is not one of those... Movies where you're like, well, at least there's a sympathetic mom character, so everything will be all right. It's kind of the opposite of that. And when you realize that the actress, uh, Lee Young-A, uh, who plays the uh, sympathetic mom in question, is the previous lady from Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, you begin to suspect something is going to go down. And indeed it does, uh, but it goes down in the, I don't want to say the worst imaginable way, but right. let's so, say so, so the premise is that she's looking uh, for her uh, her lost son and she heads to this sort of uh, tourist fishing community. She's gotten a tip. And by the way, the tip is also awful. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's it's there's, there's, there's just one gut punch after another. And uh, yeah, nothing is good here. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's uh, it's not a not a subtle film. But it's a very effective film. Yeah. So next up, we have, uh, let's cover this one very briefly. It's a, a, I guess you could call this a crime drama, but it's, uh, it looks like a social problem crime drama. It's called Buoyancy. It's from Australia. Yeah. And, uh, this is about, uh, a, a, a teen from Cambodia who is enslaved on a Thai fishing boat. Yep. And it's, and you say crime drama, it is not, it is the closest thing it is, is like a Jack London sea story. Yes. Where, being enslaved is the crime and then yeah, it's survival, right. right? But, but it's, but it's, it's not, a, you say crime drama and people think, oh, this is going to be about, you know, colorful criminals doing colorful things or cops hunting down back. Nope. This is about a guy who gets enslaved, a boy who gets enslaved and, is taken to sea against his will. And, and, and from there, the Jack Londoning commences. We are missing only a storm to have a complete Jack London experience. Uh, but there is uh, exploitation and critiques of capitalism and brutal violence and uh, masculinity at its most toxic shared out in bucket loads. Uh, it is quite the experience and it is all done without a lick of English uh, which is why it got barely any financing in Australia and they had to go and hunt up, you know, anyone who had a couple of uh, Australian dollars under their, under their, uh, whatever they have in Australia couch, I guess. 
it's probably some Australian word for it, but let's say couch and put it together. So it's just sort of a, a logistical uh, experience to see it done. And then of course they film it on the ocean, which is always a million times harder. And then with actors who speak five different languages. So it's quite, it's quite the thing. And it is amazing. And uh, the sound design by a guy named Sam Petty uh, combines the creaking of the boat with a sort of atonal score with the sort of uh, weird whisperings of the wind. And it's, it's a full thing. The editing is really great because uh, one of the things that happens when you're a slave on a fishing boat is your sense of time and, and reality go away. And so the cuts are super arbitrary and super um, uh, accelerated as he moves deeper and deeper into this sort of uh, uh, pure, uh, hell that he has uh, been brought into every part of it works. It's, it's terrific. And it's, you know, just, just one sliver of a fish, maybe away from being a pinnacle experience. I totally recommend it. It's Australia's official entry into the Oscars. So I'll be rooting for it. Uh, so next we come to, uh, there's a couple of very, uh, Curtis, uh, style movies, but this is perhaps the most Cartesian of all. It is, is absolutely the Jesus most Curtis. shows you the way to the highway, uh, which is, uh, mostly Spanish plus other money from other places. Um, and, uh, there's two characters features, two CIA agents, one of whom is named Palmer Eldritch. Uh, so, uh, Ken detail the gonzo for us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> CIA agents, DT Gargano, uh, who is pizza obsessed by the way, and Palmer Eldritch must enter the psycho book, which is apparently a sort of a cyberspace. The, the look is very sort of, um, intentionally antique with sort of old mainframes and, and eighties style terminals. You're given to understand it takes place in the cold war. They're battling the Soviets. Uh, they work for the CIA. The Soviets have developed a new computer virus called Stalin that as you get deeper into the movie, you suspect may actually just be the Soviet union. And, uh, among the other things that they must defeat is the dictator of beta Ethiopia, which maybe is the Ethiopia in the psycho book cyberspace and maybe isn't uh, his name is Batfro, and he dresses as Batman from the sixties uh, TV show, but they blur the logo out so that they can't be sued by, um, uh, by DC, I guess um, <laughs> if Warner's notices this movie, that would be great because it'll mean more people have noticed this movie, but it's a Philip K. Dick uh, with a very um, uh, soft explosions. Um, William S. Burroughs spy story uh, feel added onto it. And so it's a, a bros dick a blend of cyberpunk, martial arts, spy-fi, lucha, uh, anything with exploitation, um, pretty much jambled up, uh, shot in three different formats, plus when they're in this uh, psycho book cyberspace fighting the viruses, uh, the actors are in stop motion. And of course, when you're in cyberspace, you wear a, a cardboard mask so people can tell you're in cyberspace. So for a lot of the movie, uh, Gargano and Eldritch are wearing respectively masks of Richard Pryor and Robert Redford. So pretty great. Uh, it, it got an amazing, uh, Bill Dixon free jazz, uh, not a score because Bill Dixon, uh, died before the movie, but the director assembled all the cuts he wanted to use and then tried to work the action into them. Oh, and Robin, and you will love this part. Uh, in the Q&A after the movie, he spat on the dramatic arc. <laughs> he said he hates dramatic characters. He hates dramatic situations. Uh, he literally spat when he said the word uh, Joseph Campbell, which won <laughs> my heart. And then he said, 
I approach movies as a philosopher. Characters to me are iconic representations of symbols. And when they meet, something iconic should happen. And I was saying, get this man a copy. Get this man on the board. So I was just vibrating in my seat with excitement when uh, he did it. Uh, Jesus does, in fact, show up. And, and it's terrific. It's Gnostic, of course, because we said Philip K. Dick. And he does, in fact, show you the way to the highway. So it's not a cheat there. It's just an astonishing thing. It must have been, you know, it was crowdfunded. So there was not a budget. And it was shot, you know, in a lot of very uh, economical places to shoot, including Ethiopia, where they do have a sequence of ninjas trying to steal the Holy, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so something for everybody, really. Uh, it's, it's just an experience. Um, it is a nonstop thrill ride. No one who saw it with me has stopped talking about it yet. If you're talking about the movie that literally sets off the bomb in your cerebral cortex, Jesus shows you the way to the highway is the one. I mean, the only reason it's not at the top of my list is it's it was shot for nine dollars. It's just not technically as good as Bring Me Home or Buoyancy is. Uh, but it's an amazing experience. And if you can find it and God knows where you can find it, do find it if you are at all into the off kilter. Um, and now uh, to the kilter. Uh, very <laughs> briefly, uh, you liked uh, an American indie drama called Once Upon a River. Yeah. Uh, this is about a young a Native American woman. Her uh, mother has left her and her father dies in a gun accident uh, or a deliberate shooting, except everyone was drunk. So it's hard to say exactly uh, for the outside world. We know what happens as the, as the viewers. Um, and she decides to flee and go up the river looking for her mom. And it's sort of a Huck Finn, but it's not quite that. Uh, the The river... Uh, introduces her to a lot of different characters. There's a, uh, it's a sort of a beautiful story because it's set in this gorgeous, um, uh, upper Midwest, uh, uh, landscape. And then also, uh, the actress, uh, Kennedy Della Serna, who plays a teenage, uh, Margot Crane is really amazing. She's a great find and, uh, she is in every scene. She almost has no dialogue as well. Um, and it's just her presence that, that drives the movie and her acting that, uh, bring you from scene to scene in a, in a way. And then, uh, the beloved character actor, John Aston shows up as her foil about a third of the way into the movie, maybe halfway in. And, uh, as a elderly misanthrope who is dying of emphysema and smoking like a chimney and objecting to everything. And, uh, it's a, in a lot of ways, it's a very, it's a, it's a very sweet movie, but it's also a very realistic, real movie and there's a lot of really good strong moral choices in it it's just a terrific movie and again made for almost no money by an, uh, a relatively new director hula rose who just nails it um and the cinematography is amazing uh it's just well worth checking out um you also liked uh varda by agnes the uh, retrospective documentary by agnes varda that she made about her uh film career before she died yeah like the first half better than the second half but i liked all of it because it was Agnes. Um, I, I kind of liked her installation, the stuff about her installation work, because that was less familiar to me. Um, yeah. Now on to the sort of trade crafty uh, thriller uh, side of, uh, of Cardiff. We come to Mr. Jones uh, by uh, uh, Polish master director uh, Agnieszka Holland. And uh, this is a, uh, about a, a journey uh, into the Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, the, not just any Soviet Union, the 1933 Soviet Union. Um, Gareth Jones is a historical figure. He's a real journalist. Um, he's got, gone to Moscow because he's curious about where the money for the five-year plan is coming from. 
wants to get an interview with Stalin. He meets the supremely odious and vile Walter Durante of the New York Times, who played with a grisly relish by Peter Sarsgaard. Um, I'm pretty sure Peter Sarsgaard's showing up. Not a good sign at this point. He's like all the <laughs> yeah, other Sarsgaards. Perhaps it's, it's rarely a, a positive uh, sign about the character. Yep. And then that sort of acts as the key that turns into this increasingly unreal and horrible world that Jones discovers because he discovers, of course, uh, the Ukrainian terror famine and winds up walking through this sort of impossible whiteout snowscape in the Ukraine from scene of horror to scene of horror. And again, uh, the screenwriter was there at the show and she said before the film, she said the scene with the baby was in every draft of the script because it was actually witnessed by my grandfather. And so I put it in. And me in the audience, I'm thinking, oh, scene with a baby, eh? This is going to be strong. And it's not the worst scene with a baby you can think of, but it is not a happy scene with a baby. Let's just put it that way. So it's a, a sort of a big, uh, sort of a, a, a psychotic David Lean sort of experience or a Dr. Zhivago type feel. Um, and then, um, uh, we, we, uh, we find out that guess what? No one cares. Uh, <laughs> the terror famine doesn't matter. Um, no one minds. And Gareth Jones goes off to obscurity in Wales. Happy ending, everybody. But it's the real ending. Uh, next up, we have a film that uh, played Midnight Madness. I didn't uh, check it out because it uh, had distribution. But you checked it out. It's called Vast of Night. And it's an American film by Andrew Patterson. Yeah, it's set in Cayuga, New Mexico, small town, uh, New Mexico, somewhere in the late Eisenhower administration post Sputnik. Uh, so I'm guessing at 1959. Um, there's uh, It's a night of the high school basketball game. And... It opens with this insanely ambitious, and you got to use the word bravura because that's what it's for, bravura tracking shot as we follow the person we learn will be our main character, a guy named Everett, throughout the high school on a gigantic walk and talk while he's solving problems and being... Uh, nerd cool. Uh, he's the DJ at the radio station. And he's just there to set up the, the remote, uh, uh, recording. And then he runs into, uh, a, a younger girl, uh, Faye, and she keeps up with him. She wants him to teach her how to use her new tape recorder. We walk around, we establish the entire town in this very extended tracking sequence. And then monsters or weird noises because uh she goes to work at the switchboard and hears weird sounds over the switchboard he goes to work at the radio station uh she's running his call-ins people are calling in to identify the weird noise and then they investigate and uh it's framed unnecessarily i think as a sort of a twilight zone episode like you fade in on a 1950s television before you go into the story which is pointless there's no reason to do that um it's better than that and then it uh, comes out on an ending that is, I think, a misstep. So it's like Yellow Brick Road, if you have seen that, where 95% of it is amazing. And then the last bit is like, well, all right. I mean, it ended. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's but that 95% is so great. And Patterson does such an amazing job of the movie that he basically funded by uh, shooting um, Oklahoma City Thunder Games. He's an Oklahoma guy, so good for him. And uh, so it's, uh, how do you make a movie on a budget? You go to a tiny town in Texas that hasn't changed since 1959, and you um, uh, do it as a, a very uh, script-driven uh, uh, piece that you cast two amazing good leads in, and that's how you do it. And it's it's so good and so great. 
uh, a ride that I, I, even though, um, I, I turn up my nose at the ending, um, it, it's, I'm, I'm being a baby about it because it's, it's so great and so perfect and really it, feels. It is tough when that, the, the, the 5% of a film that you, that doesn't work is, is at the ending. That's always yeah. a, a, a drag. And I don't want to spoil anything. It's not a spoiler, but I, it was a bit of a letdown for me. I, I felt that they were going so right. And then they, they didn't so much go wrong as just didn't keep going right. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, the last of the films that you wholeheartedly recommend is a de-supernaturalized adaptation of Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. This is a UK film directed by Emily Harris. Yeah. Um, it is set in Sussex, not Styria, um, probably because they could get, you know, the houses and whatnot. And uh, they wanted to uh, bring it home as opposed to make it exotic the way that Le Fanu did. Um, and Carmilla shows up in a carriage crash, just like... In uh, the in the novel, um, we see in this movie, it's almost all through the eyes of Lara, uh, who loses her you for some reason. She's Lara, not Laura, but that's one thing. And then the role of the governess, Miss Fontaine, is elevated to become the moral center of the film in the sense that she's always saying, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't use your left hand. You'll invite the devil in. Uh, speaking of inviting the devil in, I don't like your new friend. And uh, it, it's a very great character study in the sense that all the 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 the, the, the three principles are, are very, very good. And they have to sort of build the rules of their universe around themselves and figure out what's going on because all the male authority figures are useless or gone. Her dad is off screen for virtually the whole film. Uh, there's a, a educated doctor who sort of acts in loco parentis, but is not actually very helpful. Um, and it's very much about. Lara trying to decide who to believe her new exciting friend, Carmilla or her mean governess, Miss Fontaine. And we, the viewer are also invited uh, to decide what to believe. I saw this movie um, with the uh, friend of the podcast, Darcy Ross and uh, thematically Emily Harris intercuts the action with scenes of bugs doing bug things, insects <laughs> and slugs and worms and maggots. So it's a for Darcy then of nature. Well, Darcy, Quite frankly, I was worried I would have to have her removed. She was very excited. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I, you know, during the slug sequence, she practically lost it. Uh, I apologized afterward. I hadn't known I was taking her to a hardcore porn film. Um, but yeah, if you have a bug thing, be warned, bugs are there in Carmilla. But it's a, it's a gorgeous piece. Uh, there, between these sort of great shots of nature, uh, both with Laura playing in it and also with bugs bugging in it. There's also a lot of candlelight interiors that work really, really well. And um, uh, the casting, like I say, is amazing. The the German actress they found to play Carmilla is exactly right uh, for the part, although technically Carmilla's brunette, but whatever. Um, uh, the She plays it so you're always on the bubble of, I, it's called Carmilla, so I know she's a vampire, but is she a vampire? And the, that that uncertainty is is part of what the movie's about. Too, one might argue the detriment of the of of making sense of the movie or the fidelity of the novel or a lot of other things. The gothicism, the the, the gothic is is downplayed. The supernatural is soft pedaled, but it's still it's still a really good piece of work, and it's a a great adaptation of Carmilla, even if it's not a strict adaptation. Uh, so, if uh, people want to uh, read your capsule reviews of the uh, films that you kind of liked or were met on, uh, you can either uh, head to your Facebook post that runs them all up or uh, check them out and they're scattered over a series of different Ken and Robin consume media posts. Yep. And, and on that note, 
I think it's time for us to uh, eat the, the rest of our popcorn for sustenance and then see who or what is waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. The best of Askfageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Prevent this podcast from being buried in the sandbox by joining such beloved patron backers as... Timothy Corum. Tony Kemp. Derek Heimforth. David Muscari. And Jeremy French. It's time once more for Ken and or Robin to talk to someone else. And this time, Ken and Robin are whisked back in time to the day before Gen Con in their Indianapolis hotel room. And wait... Who sits before us but veteran podcaster, superstar podcaster, James D'Amato. Hello, uh, the, heroes. Ooh, goodness, ooh, you had more nice. of an introduction. Oh, well, we were just talking <laughs> about how uh, seasoned podcasters never make elementary podcasting errors. Right. Don't just step on the, on the opening. That right. would be ridiculous. Uh, but, uh, you know, James is not, you've not been on the show before, but in a way, you've been a character on the show before. And That's so, true. Thank you for being true to form, and we'll come back to that later. <laughs> but for the moment, I think the big thing we want to talk to you about is your new exciting uh, thing, the Ultimate RPG Gameplay Guide. Uh, so the uninitiated wish to know of this. Tell them, James, tell them. Well, Robin, I'm actually very excited to be talking to you about this book because your work was a huge inspiration for it. Oh, uh, gosh. The Ultimate RPG Gameplay Guide is kind of an approach to explaining role-playing technique. Uh, it's broken down into three sections. The first one kind of breaks down the elemental process of what's happening at the table when we role-play. Uh, so you can understand it in like story terms, like the way people understand literature or film or comics. Uh, the next section sort of capitalizes on those lessons going, okay, now that we know this, what can we do with it? How do we take advantage of techniques from other mediums and use them at the role-playing table? And then finally, there's a third section with exercises to sort of help you work through those lessons and really cement them in your mind. Uh, but yeah, I, I drew a ton of inspiration from Hamlet's hit points for this, uh, and from your work, uh, I can't actually remember the title, Breaking Down the Different Gaming Types. Uh, Robin's Laws of Good Gaming. Yeah, Robin's right. Laws. Right. 
And is this uh, launched as a sequel uh, to uh, the Guide to RPG Character Creation? <laughs> so, uh, working with a, a larger publisher, you have very little control over uh, what happens with what. So, mm -hmm. I found out this was a series once the listing went up on Amazon. And they're like, we're using the same title convention, and this is a series of books now that you're writing. So, uh, James DeBotto will return in... in yeah, uh, so the, the first book was kind of uh, almost a workbook because there are a bunch of right, different yeah. exercise types and whatnot in it. This one is a lot more explanatory, I, almost more like a textbook. There's a lot of sections that break down stuff and explain it rather than activities for you to do, even though there are still activities within it. Right, well, it's because you're the GM, not the player. It means you have to work hard. <laughs> you can't just doof around like players get to. Well, this is actually for both GMs and players, kind of breaking down the whole role-playing experience, saying that, you know, everybody at the table is, like, kind of playing the game and everybody has access to these different techniques. And, and that you're all building the same collaborative story together. Exactly, yeah. The, the only difference between the GM and the players is the GM is the one who ultimately is going to say yes. Right. So Or has to prep. Yes. <laughs> so if the radical thesis of Robin Laws uh, basically was, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. uh, the radical thesis of Hamlet's hit points was that narrative is based on uh, the up and down beats of emotional engagement. What is the radical premise of, of this project? Uh, that uh, RPGs are a form of artistic expression, and it's okay to take that as seriously as you would another type of artistic expression. So if you're going to write a novel, if you're going to make a film, if you're going to make a television show, you kind of want to not take yourself too seriously, but you want to you know, take that work seriously and believe that it actually does reflect something about you or something about what you believe in the world. And... We're trying to, you know, teach people how to take advantage of that with this book. Now, that's been something that I've been saying for a while. And when I started <laughs> saying it, there were a lot of people who go, oh, I don't know about that. It's not good if you think about it as art. And uh, a rebuttal to them is not as required as it used to be. Uh, but how would you... But feel free to rebut them. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of feel like we're still going to get pushed back like that. And, you know, that is honestly fine. If people need to think of games as separate from artistic expression, that's fine for them. They don't have to buy the book. Uh, oh, yes, they do. <laughs> I mean, I've been in touch with your publisher. They <laughs> very much have to buy the book. But you know, like, I think there is a much larger contingent of people out there, You know, thanks to a, a lot of independent and, and story games that, that got uh, published that have like slowly learned that you know not only is it okay to think of it this way but it's actually really fun to think of it this way and there's a lot of fun intellectual exercise that we can do with that and in, in fairness the notion of games as story goes I mean Gary would never shut up about that him own self, right? I mean, and, and until other people started yeah, doing right, it. Yeah. <laughs> well, then they were just doing it wrong. <laughs> then they were play acting, right? And but but that but that was part of the, the 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 hobby, the the industry, the art form from the jump was that it's not just a war game. It's an emergent story out of a war game. That's why you have the same character twice. I mean, that, that's going back to Arneson's Blackmore, too. Right, exactly. It's just like, well, we don't even know what we're doing, but I put a castle on a table. Mm -hmm. So I, I think like it's always been a part of the hobby, sure. Um, but it, I, I don't think it's been like openly 
analyzed in that way apart from through game design, which mm -hmm. you know is a really interesting tact to do it because designers are sitting around going, how do I prompt these decisions without explicitly explaining to people that that's what's going on? Mm -hmm. This is the book that tries it from that other angle. Now we can explain yeah. people because we think we've set the, the rut deep enough. Yeah, right. yeah. I, think, I think other people have blazed that trail. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just doing the easy part at this point. Well, it, it is unusual that uh, an art form would go for uh, 40 years now and 50 years 50 now. years now and uh, only now be reaching the point where there are uh, critics doing critical analysis separate from the game designers right that it's as if you're you know imagining you know Alfred Hitchcock also has to write uh, you know the the film journals in the 30s um, and that's one of the wild things about it, though, too, is that role-playing being like kind of a weirdly disposable art form. Because when you have that artistic experience playing the game at the table, it stays with those five people. It's not where uh, a thing where we can have outside consumers, right. really, until this whole actual play thing. And even then, the consumption that you're getting is still great. But it's very much you're watching a concert, you're not playing in a concert. It's it's different, yeah. Right. Uh, so and that that's one of the things that we break down in the book is who is the audience for a role playing game? How do those dynamics change if it's observed like through yeah. actual play, or you know if if you're doing one of the single player RPGs that you see pop up on itch or something like that. And I, and I think maybe that's a that's a sort of another doorway around is the the concert angle because just like not everyone who's playing a banjo is playing a banjo thinking about music theory, but the things they're doing can be discussed using music theory. And you can play a banjo and have a great time and play a great banjo and everyone enjoys your banjo playing, and you never think about it. Right. <laughs> but you can also think about it and say, how can I play that kind of awesome banjo? And if you if that's your goal, is to, to recreate these moments that you might hear on, on uh, One Shot or other lesser actual play podcasts, <laughs> um, uh, then... This is is there going to be a a component where given that you have archives you can say go and listen to I don't know Kenneth Hyde running Dracula dossier yeah and see uh, how you can do that at your own table I, I would I would love to examine that more I, I tried to do that for a brief period with a show called Critical Success where mm -hmm. we would actually look at our archives and break down okay here's what happened at a game mm -hmm. I think it's harder to do that with a book um, but yeah like I think everything that you said there is right in that uh, they like all this <laughs> I, the main thrust of the book is is not even like how do I how do I do a great role playing performance or how how do I tell a great story through a role playing game. It's more how do I understand what I'm doing and use that knowledge to improve uh, under my own metrics. You know, I, I expect that there's probably going to be a, a portion of the audience that reads this book and goes, "Well, I don't agree with anything that he says or does," but I'm hoping that me saying those things that they think are wrong will lead them to have their own ideas about it. And Right. crystallize that role-playing style. That, that for everyone who's like saying, oh, three-act model, there's some guy who's like, if it's not five acts, it's garbage. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, they, they can be right for their own thing, and that's great. And if I help them get there, I'll take credit for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, so can you give an example of uh, sort of a, a theoretical construct and then the thing that you put into action in your game that arises from it? Sure. Uh, let's talk about text. Uh, text being the thing, you know, in film criticism, when something happens on screen is explicit part of the narrative, that's text. Uh, so at the role-playing table, the things you say and the way that you say them are also text in a similar way. Uh, which means the specific words that we put into the game and the specific emphasis or character voices that we lend to those words, 
uh, reflects on what I call the explicit reality of the fiction. That is, you know, if I am saying my character has kicked down the door, we see the character kicking down the door. If I say my character opens the door, you can imagine all number of different ways that they could open the door. Uh, kicking would be a wild interpretation of that, but it's technically possible. When you, especially if Thagdar has kicked down every other door. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Like, Thagdar opens the door. Okay, yeah, yeah. you've kicked in the door. Great, good. Uh, I kicked it quietly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the when the spider notices you, yes. Uh, so that that it creates the explicit reality of the text, but uh, operating at the table is also the implicit reality. Uh, the things that the context of what you know of the other people at the table, what you know of the story thus far, like like Thagdar kicking down every other door, that informs a visual that people make in their heads that is then going to become part of the text once they speak. When people introduce new elements of the game, it changes that implicit reality. So uh, how you express yourself, how you express your own unspoken experience of the game is going to change the game drastically. Uh, so that's a very like high level concept that you're probably not thinking about at the table, but if it breaks down to, oh, how I word this is going to affect how other people are able to interact with what I'm about to create, that's something that can be broken down into baby steps and actually worked on. Right. And it's, it, and this is the sort of wisdom where every GM who has ever said, and then they got the shark men come out of the pit, and everyone's like, you didn't say there was, there was a pit. no pit. Yeah, we would have investigated pit. a pit. Right, yeah. exactly. And to, to some extent, I, I think one of the other pushbacks you're going to get, and not that it'll be necessarily warranted, but there will be another class of people. The first class that you start, well, this is all wrong. Uh, there's another class of people, because uh, Robin has faced this, uh, to a lesser extent I've faced this, where you say something that is uh, wise and true, and they say, well, we already knew that. <laughs> like, and, and well, that. you know, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Yeah. I'd like to see some paperwork on that, yeah. quite frankly. And, and that is like section one of the book, is yeah. taking things that we do probably already implicitly understand. Like, I think everybody will read that section and go, oh, yeah, I knew that. I might have called it that, or, or even used those words to describe it, but I instinctually knew it, and it's like, good. Now that we have that written down in a term, it's actually going to be easier for you to hold on to the lessons that are going to follow that right. idea. And this is uh, this is about the gaming experience at the table, so it is only implicitly about design. Right, right. right. So a designer could read this and like make a design off of it, and there are game design elements that I've created to try and help people. Like right. in section two, when I am talking about like implementing these ideas and go, okay, how do you spontaneously create a metaphor? Because you're not writing the whole thing, you don't know where the story is going. So how do you use metaphor the way you, we use metaphor in you know like novel writing or what have you? Uh, so to do that, I try to break that that down into game mechanic elements so people can actually have, okay, I'll roll dice for this, or I will choose this, choose this, like like a baker's apocalypse world right. type to, thing. To what extent is this uh, is the theory of this, the sort of Euclidean uh, theory of this, informed by previous attempts at RPG theory? I mean, the Forge is mostly about design, but also some of it is about play. I'm sure that uh, to the extent Ron Edwards listened to this show, he's shrieking into the Swedish wilds. <laughs> it was always all about play and design is an epic phenomenon or something. But it was aimed at designers, not at players, but it had very strong connotations for how you played because if you were immersioning, you were doing it wrong, or if you were um, uh, simulationing, it was different from gamesting. Is that a concern of yours, uh, even being in dialogue with previous attempts? 
So uh, I, I think there's no way to avoid dialogue with the previous attempts. Like a, everything in gaming, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and taking uh, like when I play a game that's from the indie space, when I play an apocalypse world, right. I'm learning the lessons that that designer learned when they designed their game. Right. Uh, so that's just part of my design space. And, you know, there are a, a group of like five or six designers who were very influential, I think, in the lessons that I learned and used in this book. And I, I thank them directly for that. Uh, so I am in that conversation, but like, I'm a little bit too young even for the forge, mm-hmm. uh, so I did miss that wave. Uh, mostly, design is for Seeing me. Seeing James D'Amato <laughs> brushing <laughs> sweat off the I remember, and you had to go 16 miles through the snow to uselessly yeah, argue yeah, about yeah, a theory. Yeah, it was yeah, you had to hear uh, of your games. Yeah, you had to play Ron Edwards on a wax cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I missed most of those fights, and and my fights uh, these days happen in a very disorganized, decentralized place called Twitter. Right. So, like, there's the like, ideal form for a rational discussion. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are a lot of people who are going to read this and go, okay, I can see threads from this game that I played, or I, I can see threads from this designer that I follow and, and, and talks a lot, because it's all, it's just a part of the conversation. And it, one of the things, I don't get to pick the titles for my book, right. uh, so I really wish it wasn't called The Ultimate Anything. Uh, so, but too bad. <laughs> too bad it is. Uh, so I, I don't consider it to be like uh, even a final word. This is just me expressing how I approach things and the way I think about uh, RPGs. And I, I think hopefully it leads to either people giving you know very constructive like criticism on, on how they do it. And I'm sure that's their all decisions. it will lead to. Yeah. It's constructive criticism. Yeah. yeah. And engaged philosophical response, mostly yeah. on Twitter. I would I would like to see uh, people, you know, write other books about this because I I, I think as Robin pointed out earlier, there just isn't enough of Right. I mean a, a Euclid's elements of game design is I mean, even a Freitag's triangle of game design is is well away from us. We, yeah. Or gameplay, even, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I just about. bought that, that uh, book uh, that is, like, all the gameplay mechanics or, mm-hmm. or, or supposed to be all the gameplay mechanics. And, like, flipping through it, I'm like, this is great, but there's also, it feels like there's something missing from these pages, too. Mm-hmm. And I, would, I can't even put my finger on what. Uh, so, yeah, it does feel like we are really at this very exciting point where academia and gaming are intersecting and and not intersecting in like a toxic way that I feel like academia has done for other things like it still feels like we're in the wild west right uh so which as we all know from gaming is the best possible time to be yeah <laughs> for sure um so uh, this brings us to uh, uh the final point which is as longtime listeners to this podcast know uh that whenever an error or malfeasance is attributed to Ken and I that it is in fact the fault of James motto of the One Shot Podcast. So I was wondering if you have any previews of your errors and malfeasances for 2020. Oh boy, things that I'm going to get wrong in 2020. <laughs> uh, I'll definitely cause you missing some episodes. I think we know that for yeah, sure. Right, yeah. um, and hey, your, your listener, right now your favorite Ken and Robin segment isn't going to show up this year uh, at all. Oh and no! That's my fault. <laughs> James, why would you do that to Food Hunt? Your, yeah, yeah, your favorite hunt is yeah, gone. He, he, James killed Food. I I shouldn't have asked. I no, asked. You, you don't know the fa- don't know the future. Yes. No, I, come not in that form. I do love that. <laughs> Tell me, spirit. The most popular hunt is Food Hunt on this ostensibly gaming podcast. Uh, try gaming without food doesn't mm. work. <laughs> oh, but that's not in your fancy book. No, Mr. Fancy man. I'm not allowed to eat when I do the actual plays. Ken. Ah, oh, what a. <laughs> 
Shay. Uh, well, I think uh, we should turn off the microphone and continue to mock James, but, but <laughs> off, off, off mic. Off mic. But, but here we'll, we will thank you so much for being so gracious. Oh, thank you. Nice. Thank you both. This is so a great. dream come true, honestly. You really got to stop eating before bed. <laughs> <laughs>
about the natural world and attempts to systematize it along symbolic and uh, spiritual lines uh, in the same way that Aquinas is taking everything that's known about the intellectual and theological worlds and trying to systematize them. So while Aquinas is reconciling Aristotle and uh, the New Testament, uh, Albertus is reconciling all the rest of human knowledge. Um, Aquinas had a harder job in fairness, but still uh, Albertus doesn't get as much love now because we have discovered that in fact, there are plants that'll just kill you and nothing's going to help you. And the stars are just jerks. Yes. So <laughs> modern science has caused us to neglect Albertus, but in the Renaissance, Albertus was a big deal and he was not just a big deal because he was a big deal. It was also that there may have been, I think a little bit of German jealousy when the Italians show up and are like, suddenly we're the smartest people in the world because we have Greek and Roman tradition. And I believe that if you're in the Northern Renaissance, the German Renaissance, you are saying, yeah, Greek and Roman tradition is fine. My name is Agrippa after all. But on the other hand, have you heard of German tradition? A guy named Albertus Magnus? He was cool. So there is a degree to which uh, Albertism, uh, and it does rhyme very much with the discipline of humanitas, which is a core element of the Italian Renaissance. So it, there's reason it would have been intellectually uh, uh, buoyant again in the seventh, in the 16th century. But I think there's, there's also some regional, uh, love going on. And, and, uh, that's what's going on with Agrippa. Uh, so that's the, uh, the baseline that, uh, uh Cornelius Agrippa is, uh, working with. But he, uh, writes three whole books of his own, uh, and uh, other books as well. Um, for example, uh, he, uh, wrote a book called On the Nobility and Excellence of the Feminine Sex, in which he used capitalism. Uh, to prove his case that uh, women are superior to men. Uh, but uh, that is not where his fame rests. His fame rests on the he, three... He also, in fairness, was trying to get uh, the patronage of uh, female uh, nobles. He was, a, he was a smart person. Yes. I think we've established that. He, he, he worked for Margaret of Austria, uh, and then I believe one of the uh, women uh, potentates of the Low Countries. I think he was going after her, too. Yes. Um, well, if, so, if he'd, yeah. yes, if, if he'd called it uh, why I think my patrons are great, uh, it would have been a little transparent. A little um, on the nose. Yeah. But uh, the the thing that influenced other people later on, including Bruno and, and John Dee, uh, were, were his books on the occult philosophy. So what does he uh, add on to the occult tradition of building on uh, Albertus Magnus? Uh, the main thing that uh, he brings to mesh up with Magnus. Um, he believes the three books concerning occult philosophy very broadly are broken down into the three arts of Magia, uh, Chemia, and Kabbalah. And uh, Albertus is the king of Chemia. He knew all about rocks and stones and plants. Um, Magia, summoning demons and angels, he was not so strong on. And he didn't even know anything about Kabbalah. And so Agrippa's like, well, Albertus summarized all of occult knowledge, but occult knowledge has expanded. We've moved past the primitive 13th century. And uh, he then resystematizes all of occult knowledge into the three books, into his. Uh, uh, and, and so these are a theoretical study of magic and a practical set of sort of not quite instructions, but they are. It's very much the, 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 you know, this is physics. Now go be an engineer type book. But, but there's a lot of 
information about magical engineering in it. So it's, uh, there's a, a very good translation or at least a very good edition. I don't know how good the translation is. I don't read Latin, but by a, uh, an occult uh, scholar named Donald Tyson from Llewellyn of all places that is amply footnoted and will impress you. I think if you have any interest in, in magic at all, it's, it's practically usable as it is. Um, as a resource, I, I very much leaned on it for GURPS Cabal, and uh, I would recommend anyone doing a uh, Renaissance-era magic game to dig out that book and, and dig through it, because there's more good things in it than, um, than we can easily cover in a hundred consulting occultists. It's, it's a really great book, which makes it very sad that at the tail end of his life, a couple of years before he died, he wrote a book called um, Of the Vanity and Uncertainty of the Arts and Sciences, which repudiated it and said, no, magic is bad. Don't do magic. It's, it's, um, it, 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 the, the sources are all wrong. Um, nothing, uh, is magical. Just study the world as it is. Stop bringing demons and magic words into it. And, uh, it, there is an argument in the scholarly community over whether or not he is being super sincere at that point, or whether noticing that magic doesn't work. Yeah. uh, Or or whether it was a thing of like, Hey, um, we totally respect you as a lawyer and doctor Agrippa, but being a wizard is maybe uncool given that we meet the Pope like all the time. So Ixnay on the agic may, or if it was just a, um, a parodic statement about the occult where he was saying, Oh yeah, magic isn't real because he's making fun of the rationalist. Uh, discourse. It seems like a lot of work for a parody in my case. So I think it's more sincere than it is uh, unsincere. Well, uh, since, since this is this podcast, we know that that's the yeah. bailout, right? That he, uh, right. had to repudiate the uh, things because, uh, demons were getting loose or, uh, the wrong sort of people were practicing magic. And, uh, he, uh, you know, somebody came and spoke to him, perhaps someone in a time machine. I don't know. Uh, and got him to, uh, you know, adhere to this straight and narrow so that, uh, magic would go away the way it was supposed to. And, uh, you could have uh, nice, reliable physics, uh, which, uh, mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, as I said in the previous clause, reliable. <laughs> um, now, uh, the prospect of going to meet him, uh, means that your characters, uh, might get their asses kicked by him because, uh, early in his career, he was a mercenary as well. So, uh, that, Seems like a, a rich opportunity for uh, you might wind up in a, a sword fight with him. What sort of uh, mercenary work did he do? Well, I mean, he works for uh, the Spanish and then by the Holy and then the Holy Roman Emperor. So he's in the service of the Habsburgs broadly. Um, he's made a knight. He's not just a regular old do nothing mercenary. He's got he's got chops, uh, maybe literally. Um, and then um, he goes. He stops mercenarying and goes to college. So that's, that's basically what happens. He's, you know, uh, like a lot of guys, uh, in the Renaissance or whenever else you go off to see the elephant, you've seen it. It turns out it's dirty and bloody and involves stabbing people a lot. You go off and, and get a, a sweet academic position. Um, and he kept getting thrown out of his academic positions because he kept, um, uh, attempting to talk about magic and people are like, Ixnay on the magic man. And that, it goes over and over through his career. And it's part of why he pursued the highest of noble patronage. So assiduously is because once you've got uh, Margaret of Austria and then later Margaret of Savoy as your patrons, uh, you get to do what you want and no one can say boo. Uh, well, uh, I think it's time uh, for us uh, to stop saying boo, at least for another week. And then we'll uh, come back. We'll have another episode of the podcast and 
We might say boo several times. You never know. We say all kinds of things. Could be. Could be. We could be ghosts. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Ask Vagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast from being arrested on the orders of Francis I, which is something that happened to Agrippa, but we didn't mention in the segment, by joining beloved Patreon backers Kevin J. Maroney Noel Warford Pedro Garcia Stephen Hammond and Dave Choate Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin Check out our new ultra-on-brand design gaming hut On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff <laughs>